Now you can find, listen and subscribe to Chilling with Jens and the local Danfoss Climate Solution podcast in your RevTools app. Download it from danfoss.com. Service and support. Downloads. I'm Jens Andersen from Danfoss Climate Solutions. In the previous episodes, we've only touched briefly on today's topic, humidity and how to control it together with the temperatures. The first half of the talk today is about HVAC-related issues and approximately the second half from about 30 minutes into the talk is primarily about storage humidity in uh, cold rooms or walk-ins. So if you want, you can skip to the part that interests you the most. Today's uh, theme is uh, humidity control. And we are, as usual, the three J's, the four J's, if you like, the three experts in cooling. Jamie, Jörg, John, and uh, myself. I won't count myself as an expert, but at least I've I've heard about cooling. But... Uh, Coming back to, to the humidity control, we decided on, on talking about humidity control because of, of the previous topics that we've been talking about, uh, you know, uh, oversized equipment, typical installation mistakes, etc., and uh, dumping in or touching upon something like airflow, etc. So uh, we thought that uh, humidity control would be a, a nice topic for, for a conversation. But let's let's just first have a presentation of our uh, speakers. Um, Jamie, would you please uh, give us a short introduction of you yourself? Sure. Jamie Kitchen, um, been with Dan Voss for a very long time. Uh, my experiences are as a field service engineer, application engineer, um, brief stint marketing, and now I am, uh, I guess, what you call engineered sales. I've been doing this for quite a while. I live in Ontario, Canada. Great, thanks. And Jörg, what about you? Yeah. Who are you? Uh, Jörg Saar is my name. As Jamie in Danfoss for quite a while in the industry for for quite some time, more than more than two, almost three decades now. Um, done several jobs uh, in Danfoss as well, always related to refrigeration. And uh, I live in Germany, close to the French border. Thank you. And John, who are you? Hi, Hi Ian. Um, who, who am I? Um, I'm, I'm like Jamie and Jörg, I guess, been in the industry for uh, many, many years. Uh, been in Danfoss for many years also. Um, started life out in the industry at 16, um, and now I work for Global Applications in Danfoss. I live uh, close or close to Leeds, Manchester in United Kingdom. Great. Thanks, John. I'm Jens Sanderson. I've been 44 years this summer with Danfoss, and I've worked since my apprenticeship with, among other departments, drives, and I've been teaching in human resources and the last 25 years or so with uh, Danfoss Cooling, which is now uh, Climate Solutions. I've done apps together with colleagues. You may have heard about the refrigerant slider and maybe also the first versions of Cool Selector. 
I'm also sitting at home here in the southern part of Denmark, close to the Danfoss head office. Now, today's and one one thing, Jens, yep. you are the one who started podcasts. Oh yeah. Now there true. are different ones in different languages, but you are the one. I was the first one to to do a podcast. That's true. Yes. I didn't yep. know that. That's actually interesting. Wow. Yeah. Well. Yeah. At least here at Danfoss. Uh, yeah, that was the first one. Um, well, back to today's uh, topic. If we start um, with, you could say the 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 domestic comfort that would probably be, be HVAC topics, and I guess mm -hmm. Jamie, that's that's uh, that's mostly your corner of the ring, isn't it? Yeah, I've. Uh... In fact, uh, I was talking to John earlier. I was just had my uh, original psychometrics chart in my hand that I picked up in college back in 1987. So that tells you that was almost what, like 35 years, well, that's 35 years ago. So um, generally speaking, yes, that's that's something that I kind of dear to my heart. And it's uh, something that I try and bring to the realization of a lot of people like if you think back to the days of you know willis carrier when he was starting out his air conditioning it, you notice it's not called air cooling it's conditioning and the actual focus back then was on humidity control and that uh, if you control humidity the amount of dry bulb temperature is doesn't become you know as relevant as it has been today it's mostly dry bulb focused we your thermostat on your wall reads dry bulb. And the ironic thing is, is that it misses about half of the energy in the air. Because if you lower the humidity in your space, like by, you know, eight or 10%, you can drop the temperature, you know, or you can increase the temperature in the summertime quite a few degrees. And it's still, as far as your body is concerned, it's the same condition. Your body doesn't really differentiate between those two, those two scenarios. So, um, really we're getting back to i think a real focus on humidity moving away from the dry bulb and, and starting to focus more on the wet bulb so um where do you want to where do you want to actually focus on in this area should we just uh stumble forward like we normally do, <laughs> do <you want> actually <laughs> take a second and maybe look at something um what do you think? Should we talk about, you talked about residential systems, right? Let's look at that then. Um, so here in North America, you have your typical split system, which is you have your condensing unit outside, you run your liquid line and suction line to the inside, and you have some kind of evaporator coil, usually sitting over top of your furnace. Or it's, you know, up in a crawl space or attic or whatever it happens to be. So you run this air conditioning, and most people don't think, twice about what they're actually doing with it, right? But if it's set up correctly and it's designed correctly and sized correctly and, and everything, all the stars align, you should be removing enough humidity from the air in your space to make yourself comfortable. In other words, your dry bulb and wet bulb temperatures should be pretty close to where, you know, you're, you're going to be ideal. So, ASHRAE, which is the American Association of Heating, Refrigeration, and uh, whatever it is, air conditioning engineers, they um, post, I think, around 50% humidity, 
you know, 20 or 21, 22 degrees Celsius, 70, 75 degrees Fahrenheit. That's kind of a standard condition. In other words, the majority of people in those kinds of conditions won't even notice the air around them. In other words, they're comfortable. And so that's kind of a design goal when it comes to um, what we're trying to achieve. The issue is a lot of times when you try and get or reach a higher efficiency setup, let's say, for example, the new higher efficiency AC systems that we're seeing now, I mean, yes, we want to save energy. We want to get more BTUs pulled out of the air for every, you know, kilowatt that we use. The issue is that you have to be careful because, yeah, the easy the easy target is or the easy thing to do is to make your A coil larger, make your condensing coil larger. Well, making your condensing coil larger is, is fine because it's 100% sensible heat uh, uh, rejection on the air side. But on your A coil side, if you raise your evaporator temperature, which is what you're trying to do with a larger A coil, when you raise your evaporator temperature, you're actually negatively impacting your humidity removal. In other words, the warmer your uh, evaporator is, the more sensible cooling you're going to do compared to latent cooling. Now, latent cool is pulling moisture out of the air, whereas sensible cooling, probably the the, the easiest example of sensible uh, heat transfer is a heater. It'll be a plug in your electric heater. The air goes in at, you know, 20 degrees Celsius. It comes out at, you know, 40, 45 degrees Celsius. That's sensible heating. All you're doing is changing the dry bulb temperature of the air. Well, in cooling, changing the sensible temperature of the air is fine, but you also have to remove moisture. Because think about something. If you don't lower the moisture content in the air when you're cooling it, if you're just dropping the dry bulb temperature, your temperature in the house is actually closer to the, um, what you call a dew point temperature, where your dry bulb and wet bulb is 100%. This is when, and when your dry bulb and wet bulb is 100%, this is when you start making fog and clouds. So if you don't pull that moisture out of the air, you end up with a cold, clammy, damp type situation. And if you throw in mold and, and other issues like that, this is a real problem. And there's actually been a, a prevalence of, you know, mold instances in houses, be, houses becoming tighter. There's not as much fresh air coming in. And if you overcool a space, you have a real danger of putting yourself into one of those wet, cold, clammy type scenarios. And nobody wants that because nobody's going to feel comfortable. So what do you do? You're bringing secondary dehumidification. So you put in these standalone dehumidifiers and they essentially do a job that is critical, but it could have been largely done by your AC system if it was set up size correctly and operating properly. So really humidity is a huge part of, of energy, or as I put this way, conditioning the air inside. But if you're not doing it properly, it's going to come back and bite you. Yeah. yeah. You, you touched on a point there that sounded like uh, the Danish summer where it's wet and cold and I know too much of that, I'm afraid. But yeah. uh, John and York, what are you uh, thinking when you hear Jamie's um, um, talk here of, of uh, 
you could call it uh, comfort uh, cooling. Two questions, Jamie, that sort of spring to mind because I, I'm more on the refrigeration side, the cold room side, so trying to work out what humidity we want in the, the cool space. Mm -hmm. um, but what, what humidity level do we want in a house? What What is the uh, yeah zone or whatever that you want to call uh, it yeah. that, that you want? It's, it's, it's largely dependent on the outside temperature, but in the summertime, anywhere between 50-60% is fine. A little bit above, a little bit below isn't going to really matter. In the wintertime, it all depends on how cold it is outside, because what you're trying to avoid in the wintertime is condensation on your windows. So, you know, best case scenario, you have brand new, you know, triple pane, you know, argon filled, you know, windows that have, you know, excellent low thermal conductivity so that the inside surface temperature of your windows is high enough that you don't have to worry about condensation. So you can push your humidity higher to 35% or whatever it happens to be. But if you don't have that, then you're limited in how high of humidity you can have in the wintertime because if it's minus 15 or minus 18 degrees Celsius outside, you know, zero, you know, Fahrenheit, the inside window temperature is low enough that, you know, anything above 25, 30% humidity, and you're going to start getting condensation issues on the inside of your windows because, you know, they're, they're 45 degrees or something like that, right? So <clears throat> they're, they're quite cool. And remember for, and this, we should probably back up here and talk about relative humidity in it for a second, but, um, cause maybe a lot of people don't understand what exactly that means, but the more moisture in the air there is the higher the temperature that moisture will begin to condense out of so you know we call it grains of moisture so grains is is a is a measure that we use here um you know there's 7000 grains to a pound but anyways it doesn't matter the more moisture there is in the air the higher the surface temperature needs to be in order for you don't have condensation. Hence why you get moisture condensing on a glass of, you know, lemonade or beer or whatever. I remember I was in Alabama and they all the beers they gave me were wrapped in a, a napkin. You know, why is that? Because it's 36 degrees Celsius, air, high humidity, and the moisture that pours off the side of your cold beer is phenomenal, right? Because there's just so much energy in the form of moisture in the air that it just falls out of the air practically when it hits something cold. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, sorry, y'all guys. So if we're talking summertime 50, 60, in, in the wintertime, then you want a lower percent humidity. Yeah. So it, would you go down, Jamie, 40%, you know, because then you're, it's very, very dry air inside your, your building. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm looking at my site chart here. And at 40 degrees, uh, for, uh, at, uh, at 40 degrees Fahrenheit, your, you know, 100% relative humidity line dew point, yeah, it, it's roughly around, uh, yeah, you don't, you don't, at 100% humidity, you don't want it to be much above, let's put it this way, I would say that you probably don't want it much above 25 to 30 percent humidity maybe 35 percent humidity in the winter time around here 
Now, in you know slightly warmer climes, the further south you go, that starts to increase a little bit higher. But I've been in situations where even 25% humidity um, in houses with uh, poor windows, you still get condensation on them. It's just, it's it, in fact, it freezes, you know, mm-hmm. right on the windows. So that's something that you really got to pay attention to because you don't want, especially with wooden frame windows and that, you don't want moisture getting down in there because then you can start getting mold and rot and everything else forming on them. Okay, very interesting. Sorry, Yogi, you were going to say something. No, no, that's, that's fine. Well, uh, in in the winter, quite often, from my experience, it is even difficult to get more moisture into the air or have a higher relative humidity because you have cold outside air and then you don't have a lot of humidity in the cold outside air. Now you warm that up, which is pure sensible heat. It's just warming up. You don't add any humidity. And that reduces the relative humidity. Absolutely. And then yes. there are sometimes these moisturizers, what, whatever that is, that might be a wet towel sitting on your radiator, that might be um, something that has an ultrasonic that distributes a bit mm-hmm. of moisture in the air. And then you can get into, into these issues that you described, Jamie, that you have too much moisture even in the winter. Mm-hmm. Quite often, you have a very dry air inside yes. the house in the winter. That's yes. true. Yeah. Well, and and this is kind of where you know again we could spend an hour talking about this, but you, you have to look at moisture as energy. It is no different, uh, you know, a BTU, you know, or a kilojoule or whatever it happens to be of energy. It doesn't really matter if it's latent or sensible. It's still energy. And so when the winter time and you have an energy deficit in the air between your house and outside, so the outside air has an energy deficit. And as we all know from the laws of thermodynamics, energy flows from high to low. So the outside air has an energy deficit, not just in sensible temperature. It's not just that, you know, two degrees or minus 10 degrees Celsius air that blows into your house. You know, as you say, it's also got a moisture energy deficit. Well, mm-hmm. if moisture is energy and energy flows from high to low, guess what direction the moisture in your house is going to go? It's going to go yeah. outside too, along with the the sensible heat. So this is where, as you said, putting, you know, towels on radiators and everything else, you know, it's almost like an informal moisture meter in your house where if you hang a towel after you get out of the shower or bath, if it's dry by the end of the day, it must be wintertime, right? If it's still wet, you know, four or five hours later, it must be summertime because you have that much of a humidity difference inside of your house. Now, the lower the humidity, the faster your evaporation rate is. And this is exactly why we use these humidifiers in the wintertime to add moisture to the air. So, York, as you say, you take air that's dry in your house at 20 degrees Celsius, let's say it's 30% humidity, we increase the temperature to 45 degrees Celsius, we haven't added any moisture. Now we're down around 5 or 7% humidity. Now that's relative humidity. So when you put a humidifier in that warm airstream, the moisture in that humidifier just flies out of the water and into the airstream that then enters the room 
and mixes with the room air, and this effectively brings up that moisture. Now, here's the funny thing. When you heat the air up in a furnace sensibly, you have added all of the energy that's going to be in the air. So let's say you have added, you, you've increased your, your heat in the air to 50%. Let's just say it is X amount of heat you put into the air. And it's leaving at 45 degrees Celsius. When you go through your humidifier, you are going to evaporate moisture out of that humidifier. But here's the thing. When it leaves that humidifier, it still has the same amount of energy, right? You're, you're putting water in the air. You're not adding steam or anything else. So it still has X amount of energy. But guess what? It's not 45 degrees Celsius anymore. It's 39 degrees Celsius, right, when it leaves your furnace. Why? Because you have traded that dry bulb energy for wet bulb energy. In other words, the evaporation is a cooling effect. It replaces dry bulb energy with wet bulb energy. So you still have X amount of energy, but the air is actually cooler coming out of your furnace. Now you may say, hey man, how the hell does that work? Well, it is what's called a constant, you know, constant wet bulb, constant energy type process. So when you put alcohol on your skin and you feel your skin get cold, that is evaporative cooling. So the exact same thing happens in your humidifier as what happens in your evaporator. It's evaporative cooling. You're taking liquid, you're boiling it off to a vapor, and you're absorbing heat in the process. But in a humidifier, because you're adding moisture to the air, right, you're cooling the air, but you haven't changed the energy level. So let's go to, you know, Arizona in the summertime where the air is 38 degrees Celsius. Guess how you can cool that air? You can use an evaporative cooler. You evaporate that 38 or 40 degrees Celsius air in the summertime. You bring the humidity from 15 to 25 or 30 percent. Your humidity is still relatively low, but now your air is only 28 degrees Celsius. You see what I'm saying? You have actually lowered the humidity or increased the humidity and dropped the dry bulb temperature and you can cool the air that way. So it's a very effective cooling method. So that's essentially how a humidifier works. It takes basically dry bulb temperature and changes it to wet bulb temperature. That's only if you use evaporative humidifiers. If you use ultrasonic, no, it well, just then, adds then, extra moisture to the air. Yeah, yeah. that's that's different then. But that same trading, and I like that that expression that you trade temperature to relative humidity. Yep. And um, so you reduce the temperature, you get extra relative humidity. Mm -hmm. Of course, that works on the evaporator side as well. When we cool down the air or try to cool down, because sometimes you hear that somebody has installed an air conditioning system in an area where you have 90% relative humidity. Mm -hmm. Now they try to cool down the air and Can't it do only it. cools down by two Kelvin, yep. two, two degrees. And yes. they complain and say, well, the system is not working. Of course it's working. It's just taking out a lot of humidity out mm -hmm. of the air. That condenser is dripping. There's a water mm -hmm. stream coming out of that condenser. That's mm -hmm. what you're doing. 
all your power goes into, all your capacity goes into taking humidity out. And then you don't have enough left to cool down the yes. air. Yeah, because your evaporator temperature reflects your load. And as we said earlier, your AC doesn't give a crap whether it's latent or sensible heat, it's load. So that when the evaporator hits the dew point temperature, it is restricted in dropping any further in temperature when your humidity is high. Why? Because for every you know degree Kelvin or, or Fahrenheit or Rankin temperature that it drops, it has to remove more moisture. It has to take more energy out. So if the air is dry, it's free to drop all at once, right? Because it's only removing dry bulb. But if there's moisture in the air, it has to fight for every degree of, of, of evaporator temperature drop because it has to remove all this excess moisture along with it. So TXV, adaptive control, right? When your evaporator is heavily loaded, the TXV senses the superheat. Again, evaporator doesn't give a crap whether it's sensible or latent. The TXV just looks at load in the form of superheat. So when your superheat is high, TXV opens up, puts more refrigerant in the evaporator. Well, guess what? If you have a fixed speed compressor, what's the only way for that compressor to pump more refrigerant is for the evaporator pressure to rise, right? Higher density gas going in, you pump more mass to balance the TXV. So under high latent load conditions, your evaporator temperature is going to be higher. Now, this works against what we're trying to do, which is remove more moisture. Because if my evaporator temperature goes up, guess what? My latent load removal goes down. So if I want to remove more moisture, if I want to get rid of this dampness in the house, I have two choices. One, I can cool my house down to 15 degrees Celsius, right? And nobody wants that because now you're overcooling it, right? And believe it or not, I've walked into places where it's cold. I'll walk into supermarkets, as we joked about before, and it's like, man, you could, you could just hang the meat in this space, right? It's so darn cold, right? Well, we don't want people slipping on the floor, so we got to make it cold. Great, you know, that's effective. The second way to do it is to tailor your AC system for latent heat removal. Now, this is what a lot of people are doing now on the commercial side. If you look at uh, the big commercial manufacturer guys, they have a drying mode. And you want to guess what you do in a drying mode? You drop the CFM through the evaporator. You maintain your compressor speed or your compressor pumping capability, or you increase it one or the other. And this drops your evaporator temperature under high load slows the airflow through it. This means the airflow comes into contact with your evaporator for longer periods of time. And this is now conducive to removing moisture. So a lot of times they will either split an evaporator or you'll have two evaporators, one for dehumidification, one for comfort cooling. And you allow those two air streams to mix. And this way you can lower the moisture in the air without overcooling the space. So you end up with a space that still 21, 22 degrees, and maybe even 24 degrees Celsius now because you've taken care of the humidity. So you let your dry bulb temperature drift up a couple degrees, you pull your humidity down 10% or so. And so this way you're not wasting extra energy trying to accomplish dehumidification. And you mentioned that in the beginning already, it can easily happen that you sit somewhere in the room, you feel uncomfortable because it's mm -hmm. warm, and you have a high humidity. 
-hmm. And now you only reduce the humidity, keep the temperature the same, and all of a sudden you feel comfortable just yep. because that humidity is removed. Yep. I was down when I, I mentioned Arizona. I was down there on a show, and it literally was 38 degrees Celsius. And now when you were staying in the sun, you thought you were going to catch on fire. But when you got in the shade, surprisingly enough, it was quite comfortable. You, I wasn't damp at all. It was dry. I mean, you had to drink about six liters of water a day to, you know, keep hydrated. But here's the funny thing. I went in the pool and got out, and I swear I thought I was going to freeze to death because yeah. the moisture on my skin evaporated so fast that it literally was cooling my skin off. It felt like I'd put alcohol on myself or something. You know what I mean? That's how fast it was evaporating with the breeze. Now, who would think you would actually feel chilled at 38 degrees Celsius, but that's exactly the way I felt because it was probably 18 or 20 degrees, uh, 20, 18 or 20% relative humidity outside. Yeah, right. Exactly. So yeah, they must've had to like fill a third of the pool every day. <laughs> the water that had evaporated out of it. And as, as oh, you man. said, the typical control on a, on a residential system is you set a temperature and somehow yes. by itself, it, it's, um, modulates humidity as well because when there is an evaporator you always take humidity out yeah and then when you feel uncomfortable you increase the temperature a bit so you 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 somehow come to a point which is comfortable but you always take out humidity as well yes whether you're aware yeah. of that or not that's how it is and yeah the main thing i guess is that humidity is energy in the summertime there's more energy outside than there in inside, right? So the, the, the energy flows into your house, whether it's dry bulb or wet bulb. In the wintertime, it's the exact opposite, right? If it's more than three or four degrees Celsius cooler outside than it is in the inside, chances are there's less humidity outside or there's less moisture outside than there in inside, right? And so you're going to have that energy deficit. So yeah. on the comfort side, you know, we have to maintain our body temperature. So let me just wrap this up. It's important if you're designing a space for people that are one, going to be inactive, and two, have body types or health issues that make them extra vulnerable. So the people that come to mind for me are the elderly and children, because small children have far more surface area for mass, and they will feel quite uncomfortable if they're in a condition where it's either too much energy or too little energy in the air. In old age homes and, and chronic care homes and things like that, it's very important to take into account that they don't have the ability to adapt to different temperatures like, like we do for that example. So you have to make sure that in the winter time, there's more humidity in the air, the temperatures are higher, and in the summertime, you really, really, really have to take care of that humidity without driving the dry bulb temperature down. You cannot drive the dry bulb temperature down in these types of residences to take care of humidity. It is 100% not something you want to do because, believe it or not, these people can get hypothermia in the summertime under those conditions, especially if they're not active. And so I think this is, especially now with COVID and everything else, this whole air treatment thing is really starting to come into focus. But that was something that I was involved in doing studies a few years back. And it was amazing what, from a physiological standpoint, 
how much it affects certain parts of the population. And we don't think about it, right? Because it doesn't affect us. Mm-hmm. But I guess we want to go from something that has a hard time adapting to the outside air temperature. I mean, if you look at refrigeration, which is kind of, I guess, Jorg and John, that's your area. What are the big challenges with humidity on your side of the pond? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I took away your uh, your question there. No, that's <laughs> right. Ask. Actually, I was I was going to ask that particular question after Jörg said something about controlling things, controlling humidity. And I guess uh, when we're talking about uh, foodstuff in general, whether it's meat, or cheese, vegetables, whatever, I guess that's that's where uh, we also need to to be a bit more. I don't know if we uh, need to be more precise, but at least that's a, an issue that we need to talk about when we're talking about meat and cheese and vegetable, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that, I guess, is John and Jörg. Who will go first? As as you wish, John, um, I, don't, I don't mind, but yes, you're right. That's that, That's something you need to have in mind whenever you put whatever in a cold room because you store something in the cold room and as we discussed all the time whenever you cool down air you take out humidity now the cold room is designed to be cold inside that means you cool down the inside air that means you take humidity out of that air now, dry air in the cold room dries out the stuff you store in the cold room. If you are storing fruit or cheese, which is unpacked, or meat, it doesn't matter what, you don't want that stuff to be dried out because nobody wants to buy a dried out piece of meat or a dried out vegetable or a dried out fruit. You just don't want to buy that. And that's why you try to avoid that you took too, take too much humidity out, but at the same time you want to cool something down. So here we have the other challenge that we try to cool something down without taking a lot of humidity out, typically. So how do you how do you go about doing that then? Like, what are some of the parameters that you know, if you were to design a system or you were to say to somebody, "Do this, don't do that," or vice versa? What are some of the big takeaways from that then? Because what kind of humidity do you want in a space when you're when you go to the humidity and tell the humidity that it has to stay there? All right, don't (laughs) leave. Yeah, we're we're revoking your uh, travel plans. Yeah, I mean that's the the percentage humidity. Jamie, that all depends on what you're storing in your, you know, cold room. Um, okay. If it's, uh, you know, let's say tomatoes, tomatoes, you you don't want a low humidity because then you're gonna you're gonna dry out that tomato, tomato, and it's gonna look like a prune. You know, it's uh, it's gonna shrivel <laughs> up. On on the other side of the fence, if you're storing fresh meat, for example, you don't want too high humidity because the meat's gonna sweat. And you don't want too low humidity because then you're going to take weight out of that meat. Mm -hmm. And we all know that we buy meat by weight, Um, you know, so then that's a bad thing for the for the shop owner because the meat will actually weigh less. Um, And there's a, you know, many, many lists of uh, the correct humidity level for whatever your 
storing in your cold room. I think the biggest challenge becomes when it's a mixed goods, you know, cold room, um, let's say in a restaurant, for example, and they might have, uh, uh, you know, wrapped goods. Uh, and if it's wrapped and it's airtight, then humidity really doesn't affect it because you're not going to pull moisture from the product unless that wrapping um, allows the transfer of moisture. One thing that I learned uh, some years ago when I was a, a younger boy is that you can actually dry out eggs because the, the moisture from inside yeah. an eggshell will actually transfer through the shell of the egg. Um, and yeah, it's a breathe through uh, it or something like that. Yeah, there yeah. isn't a transfer through. It makes sense because there's something going to live in there. It's got to be able to breathe, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a good yeah. point actually. Yeah, and uh, we were, we had a, a severe telling off by the chef for doing <laughs> something in a cold room because the eggs were, let's say, not as they should be. Um, there wasn't well, a the lot of moisture you know within. Yeah, exactly. The chef will let 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 you know for sure. Um, I, I think one of, I mean, in refrigeration and I guess it's exactly the same with you Jamie. I mean, it was a question that I was going to ask you obviously in refrigeration let's take a you know a basic cold room for example you want to have a balance point between your compressor power um, and your evaporator so your mm -hmm. compressor capacity your condensed unit capacity and your evaporator capacity if they're mismatched either one way or the, or the other then that will affect your humidity um and I, I always go back to some slides that i made some some years ago for some training and basically it said that a 1k uh temperature difference will give roughly plus or minus a five percent difference in relative yeah. humidity yeah we use um, two degrees and that's just about the same thing yeah so that's yeah, right. yeah 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 so if you have your unit cooler you know perfectly matched that will give you uh let's say a td um, on your cooler and if you've got an 8 Kelvin TD between evaporating temperature and um, air off temperature that'll give you about 80% relative humidity within your room um, but then obviously if you have a evaporator that is larger than your compressor power then you will have a higher uh, humidity because your TD is actually lower and vice versa so it all comes down to that match between your compressor condenser uh, duty and your evaporator duty. If one is bigger than the other or smaller than the other, then that will affect your humidity swing. And I think that's one of the, the challenges that we have in the industry is to actually get products that are matched together to give the right humidity. Because and I know from my... Ahead, sorry, sorry, go on, Jamie. No, no, I was I just going to say, from from my days, Jamie, again years ago, working within a, within the wholesaler, you you did your balance graph, but then yes. it was okay. What have I got on the shelf that I can actually sell to the customer? Mm -hmm. And sometimes you got the perfect match, and sometimes you didn't. So everything yeah. was a bit of a compromise to get your humidity right. Yeah, and I know we all are painfully aware of that. What's on the shelf now? Um, if you got on the shelf, you can sell it pretty much right now, the way things are going today. But I guess what I wanted to ask was, uh, you know, I, I can remember, I don't have as much experience on the refrigeration side, but I can remember selecting, you know, unit coolers, you know, evaporator coils on a 10 or 12 degree differential. But I often thought, 
well, hold on a second. If this condensing unit's going to be outside, the temperature outside changes, you know, can change dramatically from one time of day to the other and throughout the year. So how much does that affect the humidity inside the space if your compressor unit has, you know, 25% more capacity on a cool day than it does on a hot day? I mean, how much can your thermostat make up for that? You know, as far as, you know, maintaining a constant dry bulb temperature, but is it going to cycle? It's going to cycle more often, off and on and, and things like that. Does that, do you see a swing in humidity then in, inside the space based on a, a, a seasonal uh, outdoor temperature? That's a good question, actually, Jamie. I've, I've never actually measured the humidity in a room over a period of time. I mean, yeah. yes, the, the system will start and stop more often because you've got bigger capacity. Um, if you've got a, if you're, uh, if your condensed unit is is bigger, then your humidity is going to drop for sure. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I've, I've never actually measured it. Jörg, your, your thoughts? Well, there, there is one good thing that helps you a bit on that. So when you have a higher, con a higher ambient temperature, your capacity of the condensing unit goes down because you have a higher condensing temperature. Mm -hmm. That means your running time of that condensing unit gets longer to uh, get the okay. amount of heat out of the code room. But because your capacity is lower, it takes out less humidity mm -hmm. per hour of running time. But now your running time is lower. So let's say it, it runs 16 hours instead of 14. These two extra hours, they compensate a little bit for that okay. lower humidity take out per hour and the other way around as well in the winter you have a low ambient temperature and you have a high capacity on your condensing unit so it only runs 12 hours instead of the 14 or 15 or 16 and then that has less time to take air humidity out of the cold room during okay. the hours when it's running it takes out more grams per hour but you have less running hours and that somehow it's not totally evening out, but somehow that that helps you to keep it reasonably stable, that mm -hmm. that uh, humidity in the cold room. Yeah, I guess we make mm. it work, right? We've been doing it for what, 100 years now. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's that's very true. That's very true. One of one of the, the interesting topics that I always get and I, and I see quite often is in the convenience stores where you might have one unit running two or three display cases and they'll have different product in each of the display case so you might have drinks in one uh you might have fresh um sushi in another and then maybe pre-packed sandwiches in another so where okay. do you aim your your humidity for it, it yeah. has to be the sushi because that's the one that's going to be affected more than than the others yeah that's a good point that's a good point. Um, now, I guess it doesn't really affect defrost and stuff like that that much, right? These different capacities or, or run times and things like that, because I guess that, that just determines if, if your humidity in the air is relatively constant, I guess you're not really going to, your, your dehumidification isn't going to really change that much. Do you have a big seasonal impact on, on, on dehumidification? Because I guess in the summertime, you get more moisture coming into the space, do you not? 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, it depends how, um, <coughs> excuse me, it depends how, how busy, what the usage is of the cold room itself, where it's based. Is it inside okay. the building? Is it in the yard? Things like that also affect it. A lot of the convenience stores now that uh, you sort of pop up, they've got aircon as well as the refrigeration. Yeah. Okay. So they keep the, the space fairly, um, fairly constant also. Yeah, because um, I just remember the walk-ins from kitchens when I was a kid as a dishwasher and short order cook and flipping eggs and stuff like that. And the walk-in box was always open pretty much. And you don't want a kitchen's like, right? I mean, it's, you know, 28 degrees Celsius inside and high humidity day in, day out, right? You know, so um, I think that thing was probably doing about six hours a day for us a day. Probably. <laughs> It, it always seemed like the there, there was ice built up on everything in there now that I think back about it, but uh, that's funny. Yeah, that's I mean, that's what you can sometimes see, as John said, when when the door to the code room opens often or for a long period of time, then you get a lot of humidity in, in the summer because it's so you have that high humidity in the outside air. Mm-hmm. Mentioning one thing about defrost, and here we can have a connection, somehow a connection to air conditioning again. If you do air conditioning, that water just runs away that you have on the evaporator coil. Mm -hmm. In the code room, that water is trying to do the same. It just tries to run away from the evaporator coil into your drainage pipe. For code rooms, it's, however, pretty important that you heat your drainage pipes. If you don't do that and it's a bit cold in the code room, then you have a very nice ice block uh, in that drainage pipe and yeah. you never get that water out. Yeah. And oh, one, man. One, one other interesting thing, Jörg, that I got told again when I was a small boy is that always put a U, uh, a U trap or P trap on your drain as well, because if that drain from your cold room goes outside and it goes into your commercial kitchen um, mm. and it goes into an open drain, for example, mm. with the action of the fans, the fans will actually pull the moisture up the drain and basically deposit deposit it on the cooler itself. So really? if, you have, if you have a drain coming from a cold room then it, and it doesn't go into a, a U-trap, P-trap, um, make sure it does because otherwise it will just pull the moisture up the drain um while the system's running that's you'll see interesting strange. yeah, yeah so humidity you is clouds of moisture out of that because in your kitchen you might have a dishwasher working with 85 oh, yeah. celsius and that's yeah. draining into that pipe yeah there's a lot yeah. of moisture coming out of that yeah no, I, so that's what i remember either. about a kitchen yeah, that's what I remember about a kitchen. I used to love working in there in the summer, in the wintertime because it was dry and cold outside. It was warm and, 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 and high humidity inside. It was great, right, you know, for your skin. But uh, you guys in refrigeration, I remember seeing a picture of an evaporator one time because you guys were talking about fr you're freezing up the condensate line. The, there was so much ice on the, I guess, condensate tray at the bottom of the evaporator that it actually buckled and was hanging down. And it looked like a, a, one of those waterfalls that people climb in the wintertime, you know, that freeze up, hanging down from this thing. There had to be tens of tens of kilograms of ice hanging off of this evaporator. Have you? What are some of the cases you guys have seen where it's just, it's like something out of a movie or something, you know? 
Yeah, because John has seen more than I. Yeah, I've, I've 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 got some good pictures, Jamie, of of such things, and one that that springs to mind, and I still don't know how it actually did it. Um, I can only assume that the ice, let's say, didn't melt fully into water, and you took the side panel off the cooler, and there was basically ice, you know, up past the drip tray, oh, okay. and it's like. How's that physically possible? Yeah, um, but I think it got to the point where it, it went on a defrost, but it didn't it didn't melt it to water, just uh, okay. to sort of I don't know you call it slush, and then froze again and did the same thing and the same thing. Um, it turned into an ice maker, it, is what it was then. Yeah, it turned yeah, into an ice maker where they just built a, built an ice cube around the outside of the box or whatever the housing on the evaporator. God, that must have yeah. weighed a ton, man. Yeah, exactly. It's a miracle it didn't buckle the roof on the, the unit. <laughs> you know, what you can about. see, what you can see as well, however, sometimes is that you have really a lot of ice on the roof of the code room. You might have the evaporator on on the ceiling, and yeah. then the airflow cools down the ceiling of that code room so much that you condense air humidity there on that ceiling, and you you cannot defrost that. You can try to defrost your evaporator, and that might even work. But you have a constant cold airflow along that ceiling, and you might see code rooms which which have a, a really big block of ice sitting on the ceiling, not on the evaporator, because of that's that cold scary. Airstream. Because if that falls on somebody, that's just a lawsuit waiting to happen. I mean, I don't want to sound like you know litigational type person, but I, you know, that, that that's kind of and that reminds me. What kind of velocities are you guys looking at where you start getting, you know, water carryover off of the evaporator? Because to me, if you're blowing moisture off your evaporator into the space, that to me, that's also could be a, a, a bad situation as well. Is it the typical uh, four or five hundred feet per minute airflow that uh, you, you you try and keep below, or do you guys have that problem? I don't. Basically, yeah, I'll I'll let you do the do the calculation basically a lot of that comes down to the um, defrost settings jamie so you want to end your defrost then mm -hmm. have a drip down time which i've always put at five minutes so okay. nothing happens for five minutes you just drip all the moisture off the coil five minutes and then what i call snap freeze or fan delay so that your refrigeration system runs but your evaporator fans don't so, so that you snap freeze so ah, it okay. refreezes any remaining moisture before you start your fan so you're not blowing moisture um out and onto the ceiling which is as, as yog said is sort of quite typical um you also get issues where people have the defrost termination temperature and this is no word of a lie i was in a room a few weeks ago um and the defrost probe was measuring 38 degrees in a minus 20 freezer um so it was it, it was cooking um so you can imagine the amount of uh heat and uh you know moisture that was going on in that room so uh you see some you know interesting things um i've I got see. some i'm just opening up something just see if i can uh get the uh get some whilst you open that up, um, yeah go on just, just to mention the the airspeed some i mean in the code room it is quite important as well that you get an, an reasonably okay airflow 
in all the areas of the code room. Yeah. And if there is a bad design or whatever, you don't have, have guide vanes for the air, you don't get the air into all the, the spaces, sometimes somebody has the idea to install a stronger fan and just increase the speed of the air just to blow that into all the areas. And then, oh, okay. then what you mentioned, Jamie, happens that you suck this water out of the evaporator and just spray it into the code room, which is not the absolute best idea. Yeah, because in comfort cooling, it goes down the ductwork, right? And you don't want water in your ductwork because I've been to some places, you know, down in Florida and that where they, there's literally the seam joints in the ductwork outside. It looks like something from like Jurassic Park. There's like stuff growing out of it and hanging down. And I'm not making a lie. I mean, it, it, it's true because there's just, you know, this warm, moist air stuff just loves to grow in there. Right. And so you don't want mold and stuff like that, anything like that in your ductwork, because now you're going to spread that through the space, right? That people are going to breathe. So um, we're, and, and the funny thing is when you have moisture on your evaporator, that actually takes up free space. In other words, it takes up the space between the fins. So when you reduce your space, guess what happens to your air velocity through what's remaining? It increases, right? So even though you have a clean, dry coil, if you get moisture and dirt in there, that can actually increase the velocity through it and actually give you carryover as well, right? So it just, I guess it comes down to proper defrost and keeping the coil clean. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. I'm just I'm just looking at some data, Jamie, and okay. basically <laughs> um, we talk about meters per second. So okay. if your if your airflow is dropped below 0.5 meter a second, then basically it's not going to flow around the space. Um, that's one point, and I'm just trying to. Okay, so that's about 200 up. feet per minute, then. Okay. Yeah, yeah. If that's a good. Uh, yeah, that's uh, about 200 feet per minute. Yeah, I'm just trying to find something. Uh, plenty of documentation, but you can never find it when. Yeah, no, it's, I know. Uh, it's called upon, so to speak, to see what a typical airflow on a cooler is. Um, uh, maybe this could be a good time to uh, wrap it up. Uh, yeah. Because I'm thinking, you know, we start talking about airflow and designs. I could see another topic coming down the road, man. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Let's not ruin yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but uh, thank you so much, gentlemen, for, for your participation today again. And uh, I hope to see you again uh, quite soon, I, I guess. I learned something today. I've, yeah. I'm happy. I learned something new. So We all learned something, I guess. But uh, thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Jamie, see you all again. Thank you, guys. Yes, excellent. Excellent. And have a nice evening. Thank you for listening in on this podcast. And again, please let us know what you think about our podcast. And please send us ideas and suggestions to chillingwithjens, in one word, at danfoss.com. And as usual, remember to stay cool.